Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we live in a place that allows us to worship freely. And uh, this morning on Memorial Day weekend, we are thankful for the sacrifice that so many have made throughout our history. Uh, for the men and women who have um, gone on before us, we thank you for the families that have to carry on without them. Uh, it's a sacrifice that is easy for us to forget and to almost ignore. For those who have it, um, it is, freedom is like oxygen for us. It's something that we just have. Um, many of us don't understand just how precious either it is until we risk uh, losing it. So today, Father, we remember the sacrifice made and the debt that we can never repay for that. We pray for the God of heaven to bless the families of those who have lost loved ones serving our nation, our, our home. Father, I pray for him to bless and comfort those who are also wounded and who are among us, wounded, wounded emotionally as well as physically. Father, it's our prayer that we remember their sacrifice and the precious gift of freedom every day. And so, God, we ask that you watch over those exposed currently to the horror of war, the spiritual danger to a soldier's life. Um, we ask you to give them strong faith um, that uh, no human may ever lead them to deny it and uh, that they will never have the fear of practicing it. So, Father, by your grace, we ask that you strengthen them as you strengthen us through Christ. We ask that you empower us today um, with renewed force and strength of will to know the fullness of your truth who have, has been made known in Jesus Christ in his crucifixion and resurrection. We ask you to wake us uh, to feel your guidance and your influence over all others that have voices into our lives that we listen to you. We desire to experience your presence this morning that go beyond our fears, our prejudices, our, our unfair judgments. We ask that you draw us into the depth and in the knowledge of the love that is in Christ. And we thank you that you take our lives, our old sentences and old words, and you write new stories out of them. That you transform deep hurts into sources of love and that you are the one that we seek. We ask that you hold us uh, when we cry, that you whisper us when we are lonely, that you laugh with us when we are joyful. And we are thankful that you are here with us this moment and in this moment right now, and that is more than enough that we can ask. So, Father, we ask that you give us um, grace to look into your word this morning, to hear what it has to say for us today in this century, words that are still alive, that is like a living sword. We invite you to take it and to do surgery on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing in the book of Hebrews. We're getting near the end. We're, we're uh, into Hebrews chapter 12, uh, God's parenting style. And uh, before we get started, I have a clip that I would like to show, just a one-minute clip uh, with one of the, uh, probably I think one of the best characters ever created for TV. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it here. Nine times one is nine. Nine times two is uh... two. Don't go much. My turn. My turn. I'm going to write my sentence. I'm going to write it. 
Mr. Bash, you return to your seat right now. Oh, teaching takes two dogs on long. Throw me in the way. Open that hand. <clears throat> Open it. I want to write my sentence. Mr. Bass, you are a grown man, and you're forcing me to take measures I have never taken with my pupils before. Now, return to your seat. Yes, ma'am. Can I tell you something before I go? What is it? I love you. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know the story behind that, uh, he has to go back to school. He's a guy that grows up in the hills, has to go back to school, so his, uh, his girlfriend will marry him. She says that she won't marry him unless he gets an education. So he's, uh, Helen Crump takes volunteers that uh, take him into his classroom to give him an education. And uh, uh, you see this example of discipline right there. And I'm not recommending that teachers slap students' hands with a ruler or anything like that. But we do see how discipline is supposed to work, that it is actually this act of love and caring. And instead of him getting angry at Helen Crump, she actually endears herself to him. And we, if you see the rest of the episode, which I highly recommend, uh, he, uh, it's because it, it makes him think of his mother. And uh, that's how, how discipline is supposed to work. It's, uh, it really is the essential thing of care and loving. Uh, the modern world is in turmoil over, dis over discipline. Uh, we don't know when to use it, how to use it, what to do. Um, not sure how it works. We, some, some, uh, of course, we, we're very, very well aware of uh, physical danger in a lot of homes, of, of actual physical abuse. And that as a result of that, we watch in horror, really, as uh, these, some of these kids grow up and they, they learn that the one with the power is the one who hits the hardest or the one who hurts the most. And so a lot of these kids become, you know, the meanest kids in the gang or, or the most powerful because they know that, they, that if you've got the authority, you can use it, and that's how you get it is by hitting or hurting. And then, of course, they grow up uh, thinking the same thing. Or if it's not through pain or intimidation, it could be through bribes or cheating or whatever, just trying to get whatever they want. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you've got some parents who are so afraid of the physical damage that they could do, they don't discipline at all. Uh, they ignore or ignore their kid. They, they, the children doesn't even learn the meaning of the word no. They don't know what that means. They don't know what appropriate consequences to that when they cross those boundaries, what that even means. And, uh, and that can be just as bad. I mean, we see some of these kids are kind of nuisance and menaces to, to us, you know, and we don't know how to, how to deal with them. And they grow up, and there's no way that they can grow up and be good, mature, well-rounded, well-adjusted adults uh, when they've never learned the word no, never learned what appropriate consequences is. So we kind of have this idea that we're not even sure how to, how to do that and uh, how, to, how to do discipline and what does authority even mean. Um, and so we, when we come to become Christians, we are actually surprised that God would treat us as a father would treat his children. And we are not sure we're ready to sign up for that. And when we do sign up, we are not sure we want to, we're not sure we want to submit to that, that he does have a way of alerting us to pause and think before we do something or to change a course from uh, the path that we're on or to, um, to get down on our knees and repent. Uh, 
Uh, we're not sure we want to do that. We're not sure we want to go there. But the passage in Hebrews tells us that this is exactly how God handles us. He handles us as a father would for his children. And it may shock us, but it really is an act of love. And so that's what he's getting at. And so last week, we looked at, uh, we looked at the first part of Romans, um, Hebrews chapter 12, and he was telling us about running the race, if you remember that from last week. He's challenges us, and he's moving from this exhortation to run the race into this section of admonition, of kind of warning, and uh, what he's going to do to help us run that race. And if you remember from last week, he's telling us that this is what I want you to do. I want you to finish the race. It's not necessarily coming in first. It's not being the fastest. It's just finishing. And if you want to finish the race, he tells us three things that we should do. He said we should remember those who went before us. That whole list of chapter 11. And then people we know in our own history who have had influence on us. We look at them and say, yes, in spite of those challenges, in spite of those uh, disabilities, or in spite of that reputation, or in spite of that, that grave sin of regret, they still finished the race. They still went on to finish. And if they can do it, we can do it. And he says, they, he says, so you need to remember. And he also says you need to remove, remove those things that are in your way, those obstacles that are in your path. Get rid of them. Some of them can be totally neutral, but they can take over our lives. And if they've taken over our lives, then we need to lay them aside. And he says we need to lay down the sin that maybe is besetting us, that's weighing us down to get rid of those things so that we can run the race. And then finally, he tells us to refocus on Jesus. And this is super important as we get into the next passage because we, he is our model, he is our goal. And if we're going to understand the rest of the passage, we have to understand what went, what went with Jesus. And so he's got in this, this uh, he's telling us right off the bat in, verse, in verses 3 and 4 that this is what you signed up for. When you decided to run the race, this is what you signed up for. And he says, concentrate, consider, meditate on what Christ did. And then he says, now, in your fight with Jesus against sin and evil, that's great, but, even, but you haven't even been tested to the point of shedding blood like Jesus did. And so you raise the question, okay, well, what's he saying here? Uh, is he saying that, that uh, making us feel guilty? That look at Jesus here, look what he's done for you, and, you know, get on with it. You haven't even shed any blood yet, so what are you complaining about? That's not what he's saying. What he's telling us is to look at him as the model. How does he handle these things? How does he, what does he do here? And we have to go back to chapter 5, verse 8. And I didn't really mention, spend much time on this when we were going through the early part of the book. But uh, Hebrews tells us, the writer tells us, that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, that does not mean that Jesus was disobedient and God the Father was saying, I'll teach you to disobey me. You know, he's not saying that at all. He's not saying he did not send Pilate to convict him. He did not send the religious leaders to, to, to arrest him. He did not send the Roman soldiers to nail him to a cross. This is what happened to him. It had to happen, but it had to happen because of us. The crucifixion didn't happen because of who God is. The crucifixion happened because of who we are. Amen. And God ultimately submits to completely absorbing all evil on himself and then coming out on the other side and having victory over it. He exhausts the power of sin and evil through the cross. Amen. And so what he's trying to get us to do is to look at the cross and look at what he's done and not to say, 
you know, this is what I'll do to you if you misbehave. He's not saying that. He's saying this is what Jesus learned about obedience by experience. It's one thing for God to say, yes, you know, you've got to learn to trust me. You've got to, you've got to trust me. You've got to obey me, et cetera, et cetera. It's another thing to actually have to experience it. And Jesus didn't learn not because he didn't know. He learned by experiencing this, what obedience requires sometimes. I think that has to do with his testing with Satan. Remember, after, right after he was declared the Messiah at his baptism, he immediately went to the desert and was tested by Satan. And the whole point of that testing was to say, what kind of Messiah are you going to be? Are you going to be the autocratic politician? Are you going to be the manipulative religious leader? Are you going to be the, the magic worker who can turn stone into bread? Are you going to be able to give them whatever they want? What kind of Messiah are you going to be? And in that moment, Jesus decided that he was going to be the Messiah from Isaiah, the suffering servant. That this is what God has called him to do. This is the Messiah that will conquer evil. This is the, this is the Messiah that conquers sin. And it's one thing to say, yeah, I will learn to do this. It's another thing to actually have to do it. And Jesus learned it by experience. And so he's saying, just look at this. This is where, this is our model. This is how we do it. That he is the author and perfecter of our faith, even in situations like this. Now, we've, we're going to have to understand a couple of words before we get into this passage. And uh, one of them we'll, we'll look at later. But the first word, the key word here is discipline. That word appears 13 times in the New Testament. Three of them are in this paragraph. So it's important we understand what it is. And we immediately think in our world, we immediately think punishment. In my case, in my house, it was the belt. You know, that's kind of what we thought of as discipline. But that word just basically means child training. It's one of those blended words, you know, like we have like smog is a blend of smoke and fog and Chortle is a, is a kind of a, a combination of chuckle and snort, you know, those kind of things. Well, this is one of those blending words, okay? It's, a, it's basically child training. And yes, it some, can sometimes be used as sort of a physical consequence. But it is also used to, to, to refer to tutoring or instruction. Any of these things that train a child in the way that he should go. And the author takes us all the way back to Proverbs to say, this is not a new idea. This is normal. This is the way we raise children. And he says in Proverbs, he quotes Proverbs in there, that this is what a loving father does for his children. It could have been another Proverbs verse. It was, this was from Proverbs 3. But it could have been any number of passages in Proverbs. It could have been in the Psalms. It could be in the Old, anywhere in the Old Testament. This is an ancient idea. And he said, it shouldn't shock you that God the Father wants to do the same thing with you, that he treats you as a son. This is child training. Bonhoeffer talked about the, the church in Germany, then the people in Germany who wanted to move beyond the scaffolding of the German church and really move into a deeper kind of uh, experiential relationship with God, that this is where he was moving. And he was using the... the, the um, the Nazism and, and World War II as even moving some of these people into this deeper, deeper union with God, past all the other stuff, and he was using this to do it. That this was actually a problem with, this is actually a solution, using the problem for the same solution. So that's what he was getting at. 
that God's discipline flows from the love of a father towards his children. That he invites us to do it. Now, there's two kinds of discipline that we need to look at here. There's, one, there's two ways that we can see this. And he even talks about, he says, endure hardships as a discipline. Endure hardship as discipline that God is treating you as sons. How does God discipline us? Well, first of all, he can intervene. He can intervene in our lives, initiate some action that will cause us to either pause or to change course or to repent or to, or to protect us. He can do some things to make us think those, to move us, to correct us from our rebellion or our folly or even our stupidity, okay? He can intervene to do that. But I don't believe God is in the business of playing games. I think if God is interviewing, intervening in our life to teach us something, to instruct us something, to discipline us, it will be very clear. And usually the discipline mirrors what we're doing or what we're not doing. It mirrors our problem as in hardening the heart of Pharaoh. It mirrors that. And we don't have to sit there and say, oh, why did this happen to me? Let me figure out what have I done wrong? What is God doing here? That's not the case. We don't have to play games trying to figure out where I went wrong in order to explain some suffering or some pain that I'm experiencing him, experiencing. It will mirror what our, what our sin is. He's very clear. We can, we can figure this out. He'll show us. And I think one of the, the most common tools he uses to discipline us is shame. And I think that is one of those things that are really clear for us that we know what's going on here. Now, I've talked a lot about shame, and especially unhealthy shame. And there is unhealthy shame, but there's also a healthy shame. There's unhealthy shame when other people use us, whether it's parents or coworkers or colleagues or preachers will use shame to manipulate people to do what they want them to do or not do something. That's unhealthy shame. Theoretically, shame is an emotion we should never have to feel. Okay, but we do. Part of it is unhealthy because people treat us that way. But part of it is healthy. There is a healthy shame. There is a shame that says, hey, this is, this is wrong. Or it may be a shame that prevents us from doing something. Say, hey, I'm really tempted to do this, but boy, if I ever get caught, man, what an embarrassment. And that's a, that's a healthy shame. And who feels healthy shame? Noble people feel healthy shame. The people who don't feel healthy shame are the totally profane, the totally vulgar, and we call those people shameless because they have no shame. So God can use healthy shame to say, don't go there, or they can use healthy shame to say, you need to repent, you need to apologize. One of my favorite books, and I was just talking to Rob about this this week, is a book called, by Carlo Corretto called Letters from a Desert. And it's this guy who lived basically in a, in a small community in the desert. And uh, uh, he's writing kind of, this is kind of his journal. Of, I believe it's North Africa. Do you remember, Jerry? I can't remember where, which where it was. But um, he's, he tells this incident where he gets up in the morning and there's just enough coffee for one person. And he drinks the cup of coffee. And he torments himself for days over this. He is feeling so ashamed. 
And he, reckon, he addresses the reader and he says, you're probably thinking, why are you so bent out of shape over a cup of coffee? It's just a cup of coffee. And he said that symbolized for him everything that was wrong with him. Mm-hmm. That he would take his needs over anybody else's. And if he's willing to do it with a cup of coffee, who knows what else he's capable of doing. And he says for him that was a symbol of what was wrong. It wasn't just the coffee. It was the darkness of his heart. And we can look at these things, and, and, the, this, and God will use those little moments of shame to say, hey, take a look at where you're at. Take a look at your heart. Now, the other one is when things happen to us and they're undeserved. We don't know why they happened. Like the cross. And I think this is what the author is getting at, that we look at the cross to understand this. And when things happen to us, what I think he's saying is say, use this as a chance to learn. Use it as a chance to see what God is teaching you. Not that he caused it. Not that he caused that miscarriage. But what can you learn from it? Not that he caused that cancer, but what can you learn from it? There's a big difference between saying, Oh, God sent this, this, uh, this cancer on us so that I would learn to love my wife more. No, this happened. And guess what I learned? I learned how deeply in love with my wife I am. That's the difference. And I think that's what he's saying here. When you look at hardships, when you look at trials, he's saying, okay, I'm sharing this suffering with the suffering God. What am I supposed to learn here? What is, going to, what is the child training that God can use in this situation? Well, he goes on to tell us that God's discipline flows from the love of the Father towards his children to promote our own well-being. To promote our own well-being. He says, you know, your, your parents discipline you. And I think about my parents that disciplined us. And for the most part, I respect them for it. Uh, there are things I wish they had done differently. I wish they taught me how to express emotions a little bit better than my, my parents did. Sue would probably say the same thing. <laughs> there are things I wish they had done, and I'm sure Katie can look at me and go, I wish there are some things my dad had done differently. But by and large, we respect them for it. Well, he got, the author goes on to say, well, if you respect your earthly parents, how much more do you respect your heavenly father who knows you inside and out? How much more do you respect your heavenly father who has all the information available to help you grow? That should even be a greater plus. He just has this say, yeah, you respect your, your, your earthly parents. He says, but, in verse 10, but your heavenly father, he knows everything. He knows your heart. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your, your challenges. And he can help you. And what does he help us do? He says, you will grow in holiness, in holiness. Unfortunately, another thing about our culture is we sit there and go, wait a minute. I don't want to be any saint, you know, walking around in some monastery all the time. I don't want to be that, or I don't want to be holier than thou. Well, that's the second word we need to define. What is holy? And why is that good for our well-being? 
Well, when we hear holiness, we, we often think all kinds of ideas. We think of rules and regulations, that uh, i got to follow a bunch of rules and regulations. Well, how much do I have to follow here? And in fact, legalism kills holiness. It doesn't flourish it. It doesn't engender it. A similar thing is purity. We all think holiness is purity. The problem with purity, with the idea of defining holiness as the core of purity, is that we kind of limit it to one area, our sexuality. And the question is, purity for what? Just to be a goody person? What's the purity for? You know? Why, why do I have to be pure? I mean, the, there's, uh, there's words about um, to be set apart. Holiness to be set apart and separate. And the same question, separate for what? Separate so I can be in my little group here? Separate so I can find enemies of us versus them, that we are the good guys and they're the bad guys? Why do I need to be separate? Separate to do what? And others will say, well, it means a, holy, a total commitment, a total commitment to God. Again, what does that mean and how much? Back in the 80s, there was this big debate going on in the Christian world about lordship salvation and grace salvation. And one was saying you had to make Jesus Lord of your life to truly be saved. And I was in the grace camp and I was thinking, well, how much? 80% of my life has to be submitted to the lordship? 90%? 100%? How much is too much? How much is enough? What does it mean to be totally committed? When you look at the scriptures, there's one core value that defines holiness throughout the Bible, and that is love. Love, that is the core essence of holiness. God himself is defined by it. That we are to love our neighbors. We are to love ourselves, We are to love our God. We are to love creation. We are to love even our enemies. That is the whole thing. And he says this, this discipline and learning whether, the, whether it's deserved or undeserved, this discipline helps us develop this holiness, the core being of love. The core being of love that causes me to act proactively, to do something. Love that causes me to respond, to respond to somebody's needs and somebody's hurts in a sympathetic way or empathetic way and ultimately respond to God. Love in a way that has to do with some kind of emotion. And sometimes those emotions can be fuzzy and warm and, and mushy, but sometimes they're just cold and calculated. It triggers me to do something positively, something, something that's very important. And all this creates wholeness, goodness for our well-being, healing. We use the word blessed, meaning we are enjoying the blessing, the presence of God. And this discipline helps develop that, whether it's intentional or whether it's deserved or undeserved. We take that, learn that from it. But God's discipline flows from the love of the Father towards his children to promote also the well-being of others, not just ourselves. He goes on to describe that what he sees in the church, that it should be, he said, we, we, our job is to make the path straight and to heal. He says our, our job is to pursue peace and righteousness and holiness. Now, we know that ultimate peace, you know, there will always be conflicts, but he says it doesn't matter. You need to chase after it. You need to pursue it anywhere you can. Pursue peace. And then he says to make sure 
that everyone is able to obtain the grace of God. I mean, if that's not a mission statement, I don't know what is. That we all make sure that everyone has the ability, can obtain the grace of God. He says we are to pursue peace, make the path straight. We are in the business of making path straight and healing. There's, don't throw obstacles on the path. Don't make the path crooked. Don't try to damage. We are in the, we're in the business of making the path straight to Jesus, as straight as we possibly can, and to heal. And I, sometimes I want to scream at, at, at some of the high-profile Christian leaders that I hear. I just want to say, stop complicating it. It's not that complicated. We make the path straight, we heal. That's our business. And we pursue peace. And he says we will have a vision of God. And it could refer to the second coming, the Jesus coming, that we will see God. But in the ancient world, they highly prized the idea of this euphoric sort of joyful vision of God. And if we want to see God, we pursue peace. And we do all we can so that all can obtain the grace of God. So it's not just for our well-being. It is for others. And he says you got to be careful because if you don't, you're in danger of suffering from Deuteronomy, the problem in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29. He's, he's warning the Israelites, and he says, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of other nations, and make sure there's no sin of root of bitterness among you that produces this bitter poison. Avoiding the bitter poison. So it en enables the light the well-being of others. And he gives a heartbreaking example at the end, Esau. If you remember the story of Esau, he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a meal. Going after that short-term relief led to a lifetime of regret. Now, Jacob didn't come out of this clean neither, okay? He was deceitful, he was cruel, but the emphasis of our Hebrews is concerned is on Esau, not Jacob at this point. And Esau did ultimately repent. We see them reconciling with his brother in Genesis, at the end of Genesis with Jacob. <clears throat> but his point is that he wanted such instant relief that he was willing to sacrifice a long-term goal for a short-sighted relief, a short-sighted desire. And he's saying, don't do this. Yes, it's hard. The race is long. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That child-rearing flows from the Father to his children for our personal well-being as well as the well-being of others. Don't follow Esau's example. So let's review real quickly. First of all, I know this was a lot of stuff in this chapter, and it's, it kind of feels like a, it's a, a jumble of stuff, so I want to kind of, I like things in nice, neat categories and order, so that's what I'm going to do right now. We're just going to go through these nice, clean categories from the passage. First of all, we've chosen this path. It shouldn't shock you. If you've chosen the path to run the race with Jesus, it shouldn't shock you that, that God the Father will treat you as, as children. And we all need boundaries. Amen. We all need boundaries to help us make good decisions. We need boundaries to teach us how to love. We need boundaries for, to protect us. We need boundaries to determine how we treat other people.
how to make good choices, how to develop our character. We all need those boundaries. But we do cross them. And when we cross them, God is free to intervene with consequences for our rebellion, our negligence, or just our plain stupidity. He is welcome to do this. But God's discipline is not and never will be the cause of evil. If you're suffering and it's undeserved and it's evil, God did not cause it. God did not do it. But suffering and pain, it seems, is the only thing strong enough to both destabilize our arrogance, our separateness, and our lack of love. I wish it was different. But apparently this is the only thing that is strong enough to do that. Jesus' action on the cross really is basically a, a theme that God is teaching us throughout scriptures. And it goes all the way back to Job. Job said, I know that I have a living defender and he will raise me up at last. He will set me close to him and from my flesh I shall look upon God. And Jesus says almost the same thing. Why have you forsaken me? And then he goes, follows with, follow, Father, forgive them. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Evidently, that is the only way that we can learn trust and allow and release and give up to God. I define suffering as being out of control, of losing control of your life in whatever area. And evidently, pain and suffering is the only way that we can learn this. It's through true transformation. Humanity has always struggled with explaining undeserved suffering. And yet, it is a universal experience. Every one of us experience it across the globe. And we have trouble explaining it. Well, Jesus is offering us this seismic shift on how to look at it. Yes, it's undeserved. But where is God in this? Where is God in this? How am I going to move in my union with God throughout this suffering. We can ignore it. We can, we can find other answers, and that will make us cynical and bitter and angry and just put negative on top of negative to where we blame, where we victimize or play the victim over and over again. But he's saying that's what, and you're looking for instant relief, but he says don't follow Esau who's looking for relief with a lifetime of regret. Look for God in it that all this stuff, all the, all the stuff, if we don't do that, then there, we, we risk the root of bitterness growing up within us, that all the hurts and the disappointments and the betrayals and the abandonments and the pain will just all keep piling up on top of each other and we won't find God, we won't find each other. And there's no well-being. But we find God in the trials that somehow, somehow, somehow God uses this for our good. And that's where we go, that we have chosen this. We have volunteered for this. But what it does, it, 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 it is for our well-being, and we find God in this. This is a whole new, new worldview of how we view undeserved suffering, that God can make something good out of it, that God can make something original out of it, that God can make something decent and transforming out of it. We call that resurrection life. That as long as we are on this earth, 
We live in the power of the resurrection. And that transforms us. And then we become this conduit that enables everyone to receive the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your relationship with us as Father and the pain that sometimes is unbearable uh, when we suffer. But Father, we look to you. We want to find you in it. And we give you permission to change us and transform us. In the name of our Savior, amen.